If you'd like to join me and open your Bibles right now to Mark chapter 6. Located on page 975 in your Pew Bible, we're going to read verses 45 through 56. All right. Remember, this happens right after Jesus fed the 5,000, really 15,000 here. Verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving him, I'm sorry, please stand up. I'm sorry. Thank you. After leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, a boat, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when he saw them walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understand, understood about the loaves, and their heart were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region, carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, and countrysides, they placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. Whenever you're looking to waste some time on the internet, it's a great pastime. I want you to look up something called life hacks. Have you ever heard of a life hack? It's a weird term. Basically, it's a, it's a tip. It's a trick. It's something where you can take ordinary objects that are lying around, or that you use every day, and make them better somehow. So, for example, let me give you a couple examples here. If you have one of those window air conditioning units, you can put a dryer sheet over the vent there to make your room smell more aromatic. Let your college students' friends know that trick. That's, a, that's an important one. Or if maybe you're making boiled eggs, you put a teaspoon of baking soda into your pot, and then the shell will just peel off the egg very effortlessly. Maybe you're going uh, to, to a picnic tomorrow or today. If you're serving condiments at a picnic, take a muffin pan, uh, pan and use the different little divots in the muffin pan to serve your ketchup and mustard and your different condiments. It's a life hack. My favorite life hack, I found this out, I actually tested it at a campfire. If you ever need kindling, and that will start a fire right away, and I'm not joking with you, Doritos. Dor <laughs> I'm not kidding. Doritos make incredible kindling, and also they spark. It's the weirdest. makes you wonder what you're actually putting in your body when you eat something like that. 
But the idea behind a life hack is to take ordinary objects that you use every day to create a better life for us, something that you may never have thought of using that way before. It kind of it's a, it's a breakthrough. If you, if you actually discover a really good life hack, it's kind of this little revelation you have in your life to make your life better. So as the Gospel of Mark continues here, we, we explore this theme of who Jesus is, who Jesus is. We arrive at this account today that we just read to see how Jesus breaks through, or at least attempts to, break through to his disciples. The person they thought he was is shown to be far better, far more beneficial, and far greater than they ever thought he previously was. And this all started with a trip across a lake. So we kind of have to back up here, back up to last week, with the whole feeding of the 5,000, because really this ties right in to what happened then. So right immediately after Jesus feeds the crowds, there, a danger pops up, a, a very clear and present danger that John identifies in chapter 6 of his gospel. And the danger is this, that the crowd is so impressed with Jesus that they think this is it, this is our Messiah, and they actually go to seize Jesus and make him king by force. So that's why we get this weird little sentence here at the beginning of our passage today where Jesus dismisses the crowd, and actually before he does that, he sends the disciples away. In fact, the language here is very forceful. He forcefully sends them away. He urges them, get in this boat, get out of here now. Why does Jesus do that? Because the disciples are prone to the same sort of exuberant excitement, this this heady notion that suddenly this is it. This is a revolution we've been waiting for. Our Messiah is going to, you know, like they, they were in the middle of that miracle. They were so excited that Jesus knows that the disciples themselves are likely to get swept up in all this fervor. And so he says, you guys got to get out of here. Go on this boat. Go across the lake. I'll catch up with you later. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd. And then Jesus goes off to pray the night away. And we don't know what Jesus prays for. But when we look at other accounts of when Jesus prays, usually he's praying for himself, and then he's also praying for his followers, for his disciples. And we know that right here in this passage, his disciples need prayer. Because once again, Jesus has deliberately sent his disciples into the middle of trouble. I can imagine as they're rowing across this lake, and suddenly the wind is whipping up, and Peter and Andrew look at each other and they go, not again. Not again. Man, they remember the last time they were rowing out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. Remember when a storm came up? But then they had Jesus. This time, Jesus is nowhere to be seen. So they're, they're groaning and they're straining, and they're trying to row against a stiff crosswind. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're a better person than I am. You probably are. But I am at my absolute worst when I am physically miserable. When I am sick... When I am hot, when I am sweaty, when I, I don't know, when I'm exhausted, I'm rarely at my best, especially when I'm trying to do something for God. Because then my mindset is, come on, God, I'm trying to do this for you. Why are you making it so hard on me? <coughs> Excuse me. Still recovering here. In those situations, I'm more liable. <coughs> more liable to complain and not give it my all. And that's the thing about obeying God. Obedience 
when we're placed in the path of obedience, we're often placed in the way of being uncomfortable, sometimes being miserable. When you go to serve other people, when you go to obey God's command, rarely, sometimes, but rarely, is it the occasion where everything just goes smoothly, where working for God is an effortless task. When you show up to the workday in a couple weeks, you're all coming, right? Come to the workday, it's not, you know, you're not going to sit on a couch and Michael's going to be there fanning you and Gene's going to be feeding you grapes. It's not, that's not what we're going to be doing. We are going to be a little bit miserable. We're going to be getting hot and sweaty doing some stuff that needs to be done. Sometimes when we obey Jesus, we have to strain and we have to struggle. And that's what we see the disciples doing here. Yeah, I want us to know that the disciples are almost rowing in vain. The more they row, the more they're staying still. They're square in the sights of God. Jesus never takes his eyes off of them. Even though they're miles out, he still has his attention squarely on them and has this compassionate care coming down on their heads. And so as he sees them straining, as he sees them struggling, Jesus walks out three miles on the surface of the lake. We know this because this is covered in some of the other Gospels. He doesn't walk, as some critics have suggested, on a, on a sandbar that happened to stretch out into the middle of the lake. No, this is three miles deep into the center of the Sea of Galilee. And he's walking on the rising and falling waves against a very hard wind, as casually as you may have strolled down the aisle this morning in church. A few years ago, in vacation Bible school, we were dealing with the miracles of Jesus. And the, the one day, we had the miracle of Jesus walking on water. So I, I always got to do story time with the kids. I really love doing that. So the kids came in, and I had a big pan of water. And I put it on the floor, and we told the story of Jesus walking on water. And then I took out a $10 bill. And I said, okay, guys, any of you who can take two steps on the top of the water here, I'll give this $10 bill to. They lined up, God bless them. And every kid, man, they, they took the... They were so tender in how they put that first foot down as if they could trick water into holding them up. And I just was, at the end of the day, there were a lot of wet feet, there were a lot of wet ankles, and I still had my $10 in my pocket. So we looked at something that was impossible for us, and the point was that what was impossible for us, God didn't even give a second thought. Jesus just went, yeah, he wasn't making a show out of it, a production out of it. He just walked across the lake to them. And that was amazing. But that's not where it ends there. The passage here has a very strange verse. I don't know if you saw it when we were were reading it through. But Jesus made to pass them by. Did you catch that? When I originally read this, I thought, Jesus is being a jerk. What is he doing? I'm, I'm not being blasphemous. I just really thought Jesus was being very insensitive. They're, they're, they're straining, they're rowing, and Jesus is just like, hey guys, what's up? And he's going to pass them right on by. What's that? I mean, why is Jesus doing it? Why pass them by? And then that phrase really caught my attention. Pass them by. Where have we read that? Somewhere else in the Bible. You really have to go back to the Old Testament. I'll wait till the light bulbs start going off here. When in the Old Testament... Have we heard the phrase, pass them by? One, 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 one instance was with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, go into a cave, and I will pass you by. And you can come out, and you can look at the back of me. 
You can see the back of your God. Another place that we saw that the phrase past and by was when God told Elijah, Elijah, go into a cave, I'm going to pass you by and you can come out and you can see me. What's going on here is a very fancy phrase. I'm going to teach it to you. You can use it to your, all your friends and then impress them and make them feel like you're not as educated or they're not as educated as you. This is your fancy seminary today, and it's called theophany. Theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. When God makes Himself visibly present to people. Now there is a danger to that. What's the danger? If you look upon God's face as a sinner, you will what? Die. Because you are not holy, and the not holy cannot look upon the holy and live. Let me read to you the, the theophany that Elijah encountered in 1 Kings, because I think this ties into our story today very well. Elijah replied, he's talking with God, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, they have torn down your altars, they've put your prophets to death by the sword. God, I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, do you remember? A gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. That was a theophany, God passing by. And when God does that, when he shows and he makes himself visibly present to his followers, he's doing this for a very specific reason. He does it to encourage the faithful who are struggling. He does it to encourage the faithful who are struggling. Moses, when he got his theophany, he was struggling with the burden of leading Israel, of this immense task of leading two million plus people across the desert into the promised land. Elijah was struggling with the massive rejection of being a prophet, trying to bring the word of God to the people. And now we get to the disciples. And the disciples are struggling, not just physically, although they are, but they're also struggling in understanding who Jesus really was. So Jesus decides to give them a theophany. He decides to pass by them while performing a supernatural act that no person would be able to perform. He wants to do this to encourage them and reassure them that even in the midst of all their strains and struggles, especially in the future, when they would be straining and struggling in different ways, God is with them. Now, you'll note that there is no part of this passage where God promises us that a life in Christ will be free of struggle. I'm not going to peddle that to you, and I don't think anybody should. However, I think the real reassurance here is that you are promised that even while you are straining, while you are struggling, God is watching you and God is with you. He is there to encourage you and he is there to hold you up. Now, when Joy and I got married, here's a weird little coincidence. We actually honeymooned 20 minutes away here in Niagara Falls 14 years ago. And we're on the Canadian side 
And if you've ever been over there, they've got some really crazy and fun attractions. And we had a lot of fun. People were always laughing at us. Why would you go to Niagara Falls? I'm like, it was a really fun honeymoon. We had a blast. But out of all the attractions we went and saw, we saw this one place called the Nightmare Fear Factory. Has anybody gone to the Nightmare Fear Factory? All right, okay. So um, the Nightmare Fear Factory bills itself as the world's scariest haunted house. And we saw that. We were like, sign us up. Take, take our $20, sir. We'd like to experience this horrible thing. And so that's what we did. And it was the first and last time my wife and I ever went through a haunted house together. And let me tell you, it was horribly scary. I've never been in a place that was that dark and things were popping out at us and we were screaming our way through the entire thing. And there came a point where suddenly the light came on and um, the roof kind of was falling on our heads and headlights were coming right at us. And there's this reaction like you just lose every, control of everything and you scream your head off. And at that point they just take a picture of you. And you can go on the Nightmare Fear Factory's website and see pictures of people in their, in their most fearful state. And when we got out, we saw a picture of ourselves, and our jaws were unhinged. My wife was clutching onto the back of me, and I was like, ah! And my eyes were bulged out. So I just want to say, right, right when we read this passage right here, I'm not passing judgment on the disciples' reaction to when a stranger, wa- or not, well, what they thought was a stranger, washed out of nowhere on the surface of a lake in the middle of the night. Because as it says here, they pretty much scream their heads off like little girls in a haunted house. And if I was Jesus, man, I would have not been able to resist the temptation to really mess with them at that point. You know, but I'm not a very nice guy. But Jesus, he's, he's compassionate. He's caring. And he loves them. And you notice that right here he's planning He plans to give them a theophany where he's going to pass by. But he actually stops because he sees their terror. He sees their fear. And instead he tells them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Many times, I think this is really interesting. Every time, keep your eyes out for this when you read the Bible. When a supernatural visitor, whether it's the Lord or an angel, comes to visit people, usually there's a threefold proclamation where the person will, will give reassurance, will give identification, and will give a command. Reassurance, identification, command. And you'll see this over and over. Don't be afraid. I'm Gabriel. I'll deliver a message to you. Um, and so here we have Jesus doing the same thing. And Jesus, what I really want to zero in here is how he identifies himself. Now, I think your Bibles kind of do you a bit of injustice because your Bibles say, it is I. And that's a that's almost a casual thing, like, hey, guys, don't be scared, it's me. That's not what he's saying. The actual, the phrase he's using here is, um, it's a Greek phrase. It's called ego imi. Ego imi, that's, that's what's translated here into I am. And what's, what, what the phrase is calling back to is the old Hebrew phrase of Yahweh. I am who I am. And we've heard this, of course, when Moses asked God at the burning bush, says, God, what is your name? And God says, Yahweh, I am who I am. And you capitalize all of that. I am who I am. And when Jesus, in in the Gospel of John, is identifying himself over and over again, he uses these I am statements. 
You go, I me. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am is, is the sacred name of God. So when Jesus shows up and says, do not be afraid, take courage, I am. He is identifying himself as God. He is following up on the theophany here. He has shown them that he is God, and now he is identifying himself as God to his people. But there is a difference here. There's a difference between what Jesus does and what God did, the Father did for Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, God, why? What does Jesus do here? He stops and he gets in the boat. God does not just pass by his people anymore. He identifies with his people and he gets into the boat to share their struggles with them. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind. First of all, we need to be vigilant against demoting Jesus in our heads to something less than the full status that he deserves. Jesus is I am. He is God. He's not just our buddy. He is not just our friend. He's not just a good teacher. And I, I know we like that's safe things. I am is not safe. I am is greater than the universe itself. And you cannot wrap your head around it. But when we remember that, when we hold Jesus up as I am, we start to be able to develop a proper relationship with him, a relationship with a God that wants to identify with his people, who wants to get into the boat with you as you're struggling and says, can I help you? And you look over and you see the God of the universe take that oar and start doing that. Now, if I was writing the Bible, nobody asked me, but if I was writing the Bible, I would have a much better ending to this story. I would create a very pat ending. I'd create an ending where the disciples, they were formerly terrorized and they were scared. They suddenly have understanding and relief wash over them. And then they praise Jesus and they worship him as God. That's how I would end this story. That's not how this story ends. Even after Jesus gets into the boat, and nature, you'll note, once again obeys him by calming down, the twelve are still shown to be kind of clueless. Jesus has given them a golden opportunity to respond. And in a way, it's kind of this test to see how far they've come in their faith. Do you remember being in school and having your teacher spring on you pop quizzes? Weren't those the worst? Pop quiz, oh, I hate pop Because you never prepare for them. You never know when they're going to hit you. You can only just hope that you know the answers. You suddenly ha- have them in your head, and you'll be able to pass. You either do or you don't. And you think that after hearing Jesus' incredible teaching, after seeing him raise a girl from the dead, after helping him feed thousands of people with nothing but two loaves and a, a few fish, and even after going on a mission trip full of healings and and teaching and preaching, the disciples would have been primed at this point to pass this pop quiz of faith. But the text tells us that they were still amazed and bewildered at what Jesus was doing. And for the first time in Mark, we get an explanation why. We get some insight here. It's not because disciples are lacking in intelligence. It's not because they're superstitious or suddenly have all been bonked on the head and have amnesia. No, in verse 52 tells us they're acting like this because their hearts were hardened. Hearts were hardened. 
a hard heart, default state of a sinner. It's a state we all start in. In this state, there is absolutely no ability to respond to the gospel and to respond to Jesus. When you have a hard heart, you cannot respond. And you can't soften your own heart. The only way your hard heart can become soft is through the Holy Spirit. Isaiah kind of laid this out to us in his, in his book when he ministered to a nation full of hard-hearted people. And he said, you people, you will hear but never understand. You will see but never perceive, for this people's heart has indeed grown dull. In short, the truth can be right there in front of your eyes, but until your heart is softened, a process that the Bible calls regeneration, you will never acknowledge it. And when the Holy Spirit comes in, that's his first work, is to regenerate your heart, to soften it, so that you can respond to the gospel in faith. And sometimes that regeneration doesn't happen overnight. I kind of really appreciate, the more I, I looked at this passage, the more I appreciate that the apostles here aren't jumping to easy conclusions. They're really struggling and grappling with this question. And I appreciate that Mark doesn't interject at every turn. And those idiots still didn't understand that Jesus was God. Instead, what Mark here does is he invites us to look at the evidence and then start to grapple with this question ourselves. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? Look at the evidence here. He's walking on water. He's about to pass by. He's doing a He's identifying himself as Yahweh. Who is he really? And what is that for my life? Jesus confronts the hard heart that lies in all of us. We can try to ignore that. We can try to refute him or deny him. But I think the longer we read through Mark here, the more difficult it is to do that in the face of all this evidence that starts to pile up. But our hearts, they kick, they push, and they have that emotional immaturity and that sinful rebellion that keeps them hard. For us, the question is, how do we respond to the identity of Jesus? When Jesus shows us that he is God, when he identifies himself as God, and he wants to be part of our lives, There's just no wiggle room to demote him. We have to understand, we have to ask ourselves that question, how do we we respond to a God who wants to be in that boat with us? Do you invite him in? Do you invite him in to make your life take that ordinary life and transform it, to life hack it into something way better, something way more beneficial? Do you see a God who desires a personal relationship with you? Or do you shove him away? Or do you invite him in? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, when we read, I am, Lord, it just makes our hearts jump. It makes our hearts jump because we know you are God. You are not an angel. You're not just a great man, but you are God. And Because you are God, you are able to do everything, including to save us to bring us back from the dead. Lord, I pray that we would read these words and we would be encouraged in the same way that hopefully the disciples were encouraged years later by remembering that God was with them. Lord, we know that you are in this place. You are in this room right now. You are in our lives. 
And you are doing wonderful things with our ordinary bodies and our ordinary talents. Lord, I pray for the people here today. Please bless them. Please bless them in their struggles. Let them know that they are not alone. Lord, give them this deep reassurance and encouragement so that they can go out and do your work. In your name, amen. I want to remind you that if you do want to speak to an elder or have somebody pray over you, one will be available in the front afterwards. Please now receive the benediction. The grace of God Jesus Christ be with your spirit now and always. Go with peace.